Section 1 of Rough and Ready, or Life Among the New York Newsboys. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tori Falder. Rough and Ready, or Life Among the New York Newsboys, by Horatio Alger, Jr. Preface. Rough and Ready is presented to the public as the fourth volume of the Ragged Dick series, and, like two of its predecessors, was contributed as a serial to The Schoolmate, a popular juvenile magazine. Its second title, Life Among the New York Newsboys, describes its character and purpose. While the young hero may be regarded as a favorable example of his class, the circumstances of his lot, aggravated by the persecutions of an intemperate parent, are unfortunately too common, as any one at all familiar with the history of the neglected street children in our cities will readily acknowledge. If Rough and Ready has more virtues and fewer faults than most of his class, his history will at least teach the valuable lesson that honesty and good principles are not incompatible even with the greatest social disadvantages, and will, it is hoped, serve as an incentive and stimulus to the young people who may read it. New York, December 26, 1869. Chapter 1 Introduces Rough and Ready on the sidewalk in front of the Times office, facing Printing House Square, stood a boy of fifteen with a pile of morning papers under his arm. Herald, Times, Tribune, World, he vociferated with a quick glance at each passerby. There were plenty of newsboys nearby, but this boy was distinguished by his quick, alert movements and his evident capacity for business. He could tell by a man's looks whether he wanted a paper, and oftentimes a shrewd observation enabled him to judge which of the great morning dailies would be likely to suit the tastes of the individual he addressed. "'Here's the Tribune, sir,' he said to a tall, thin man with a carpet-bag and spectacles, who had the appearance of a country clergyman. "'Here's the Tribune, best paper in the city.' "'I'm glad you think so, my lad. You may give me one. It's a good sign when a young lad like you shows that he has already formed sound political opinions.' "'That's so,' said the newsboy. "'I suppose you've seen Horace Greeley?' "'In course, sir. I see him most every day. He's a brick.' "'A what?' inquired the clergyman, somewhat shocked. "'A brick!' "'My lad, you should not use such a term in speaking of one of the greatest thinkers of the times.' "'That's what I mean, sir. Only brick's the word we newsboys use.' "'It's a low word, my lad. I hope you'll change it. Can you direct me to French's hotel?' "'Yes, sir. There it is, just at the corner of Frankfort Street.' "'Thank you. I live in the country, and am not very well acquainted with New York.' "'I thought so.' "'Indeed, what made you think so?' asked the clergyman, with a glance of inquiry, unaware that his country air caused him to differ from the denizens of the city. "'By your carpet-bag,' said the boy, not caring to mention any other reason. "'What's your name, my lad? Rough and ready, sir.' "'What name did you say?' asked the clergyman, thinking he had not heard aright. "'Rough and ready, sir. That's a singular name. My right name is Rufus, but that's what the boys call me.' ah yes indeed well my lad i hope you will continue to cherish sound political sentiments until the constitution gives you the right to vote yes sir thank you have a paper sir the clergyman moved off and rough and ready addressed his next remark to a sallow complexioned man with a flashing black eye and an immense flapping wide-awake hat paper sir here's the world give me a copy what's that the tribune none of your black republican papers for me greeley's got nigger on the brain do you sell many tribunes only a few sir the world's the paper i only carry the tribune to accommodate a few customers 
I wouldn't have anything to do with it, and the admirer of the world passed on. Got the Herald, inquired the next man. Yes, sir, here it is, smartest paper in the city. Got twice as much news as all the rest of the papers. That's where you're right. Give me the Herald for my money. It's the most enterprising paper in America. Yes, sir, James Gordon Bennett's a perfect steam engine. Ever see him? Yes, sir, often he's a brick. I believe you. Paper, sir? Tribune, sir? Rough and Ready addressed this question somewhat doubtfully to a carefully dressed and somewhat portly gentleman who got out of a Fourth Avenue car and crossed to the sidewalk where he was standing. Don't want the Tribune. It's a little too extreme for me. Got the Times? Yes, sir, here it is. Best paper in the city. I'm glad you think so. It's a sound, dignified journal, in my opinion. Yes, sir, that's what I think. Henry J. Raymond's a brick. Ahem, <clears throat> my lad. You mean the right thing, no doubt, but it would be better to say that he is a man of statesmanlike views. That's what I mean, sir. Brick's the word we newsboys use. Just then, a boy somewhat larger than Rough and Ready came up. He was stout and would have been quite good-looking, if he had been neatly dressed, and his face and hands had been free from dirt. But Johnny Nolan, with whom such of my readers as have read Ragged Dick and Fame and Fortune are already acquainted, was not very much troubled by his deficiencies in either respect, though, on the whole, he preferred whole garments, but not enough to work for them. Johnny was walking listlessly, quite like a gentleman of leisure. "'How are you, Johnny?' asked Rough and Ready. "'Where's your blackin' box?' "'Somebody stole it,' said Johnny, in an aggrieved tone. "'Why don't you get another? I ain't got any money.' "'I never knew you when you did have,' said the newsboy. "'I ain't lucky,' said Johnny. "'You won't be till you're a little smarter than you are now. What are you going to do?' "'I don't know,' said Johnny. "'I wish Mr. Taylor was in this city.' "'What for?' "'He used to give me money most every day,' said Johnny. "'I don't want anybody to give me money,' said Rough and Ready independently. "'I can earn my own living.' I could get a place to tend a paper stand, if I had good clothes, said Johnny. Why don't you go to work and earn enough money to buy some then, said the newsboy. I can't. I ain't got no money. I sold sixty papers this morning and made sixty cents, said Rough and Ready. I ain't made nothing, said Johnny despondently. Come, I'll tell you what I'll do, said the newsboy. Here's two tribunes, two worlds and times, and three heralds. Just go round the corner and sell them, and I'll give you all the profits. All right, said Johnny, brightening up at the prospect of making something. What's the news? Steamboat exploded on the Mississippi. Five hundred people thrown half a mile high in the air. One man miraculously saved by falling in a mud hole. Can you remember all that? Yes, said Johnny. Give me the papers. Johnny went round to Nassau Street and began to cry the remarkable news which had just been communicated to him. That ought to sell the papers, said Rough and Ready to himself. Anyway, Johnny's got it exclusive. There ain't any other newsboy that's got it. In about a half an hour, Johnny came back empty-handed. Sold all your papers, asked the newsboy. Yes, said Johnny. But was that true about the steamboat? Why? Because people looked for it and couldn't find it. And one man said he'd give me a lickin' if I called out news that wasn't true. Well, if it isn't true now, it will be some other day. Explosions is a permanent institution. Anyhow, it isn't any worse for us to cry news that ain't true than for the papers to print it when they know it's false. Whatever may be thought of the morality of Rough and Ready's views on this subject, it must be admitted that in manufacturing news to make his paper sell, he was only imitating the example of some of our most prominent publishers. The same may be said of his readiness to adopt the political views and prejudices of his customers for commercial profit. I may as well remark here that, though Rough and Ready is a favorite of mine for his energy, enterprise, and generous qualities, 
I do not mean to represent him as a model boy. I shall probably have to record some things of him which I cannot wholly approve, but then it is to be considered that he is a newsboy, whose advantages have been limited, who has been a familiar witness to different forms of wickedness ever since he was old enough to notice anything, and, notwithstanding, has grown up to be a pretty good boy, though not a model. In fact, one reason why I do not introduce any model boys into my stories is that I do not find them in real life. I know a good many of various degrees of goodness, but most of them have more failings than one. Failings which are natural to boys, springing oftentimes more from thoughtlessness than actual perverseness. These faults they must struggle with, and by determined effort they will be able, with God's help, to overcome them. They have less excuse than the friendless newsboy, because more care has been bestowed upon their education and moral training. Here's eleven cents, Johnny, said the newsboy, after receiving from his assistant the proceeds of his sales. Isn't it better to earn them than have somebody give them to you? I don't know, said Johnny doubtfully. Well, you ought to then. I've sold fifteen more. That's seventy-five I've sold this morning. What are you going to do with your money? I got trusted for breakfast at the lodge this morning, said Johnny, but I must earn some more money or I can't buy any dinner. Which do you like best, selling papers or blacking boots? I like blacking boots. Tain't so hard work. Why didn't you take care of your box? I laid it down in a doorway. I guess some boy stole it. I'll tell you what I'll do, Johnny. I'll buy you a new box and brush and we'll go wax. All right, said Johnny. As the allusion may not be understood by some of my young readers, I will explain that it is a custom among the more enterprising street boys, who are capitalists to a small amount, to set up their more needy fellows in business, on condition that they will pay half their earnings to the said capitalist as a profit on the money advanced. This is called going wax. It need hardly be said that it is a very profitable operation to the young capitalist, often paying 50% daily on his loan a transaction which quite casts into the shade the most tempting speculations of Wall Street. It is noteworthy that these young bohemians, lawless as they often are, have a strict code of honor in regard to such arrangements, and seldom fail to make honest returns, setting a good example in so far to older business operators. On receiving Johnny's assent to his proposal, the newsboy proceeded to a street stand on Nassau Street and bought the necessary articles for his companion, and then the two separated. Johnny, confiding in his prospects of future profits, stopped at the pie-and-cake stand at the northeast corner of Nassau and Fulton Streets, and bought of the enterprising old woman who has presided over it for a score of years a couple of little pies, which he ate with a good appetite. He then shouldered his box and went to business. Chapter 2. Little Rose. Rough and Ready had sold out his stock of morning papers, and would have no more to do until the afternoon, when the evening posts and express appeared. The mail, telegram, and news, which now give employment to so many boys, were not then in existence. I may as well take this opportunity to describe the newsboy, who is to be the hero of my present story. As already mentioned, he was fifteen years old, stoutly built, with a clear, fresh complexion, and a resolute, good-humored face. He was independent and self-reliant, feeling able to work his own way without help, and possessed a tact and spirit of enterprise which augured well for his success in life. Though not so carefully dressed as most of the boys who will read this story, he was far from being as ragged as many of his fellow newsboys. There were two reasons for this. He had a feeling of pride, which made him take some care of his clothes, and besides, until within a year, he had had a mother to look after him. In this respect, he had an advantage over the homeless boys who wander about the streets, not knowing where they shall find shelter. 
But within a year, circumstances had changed with our young hero. His mother had been left a widow when he was nine years old. Two years later, she married a man of whom she knew comparatively little, not from love, but chiefly that she might secure a comfortable support for her two children. This man, Martin, was a house carpenter and was chiefly employed in Brooklyn and New York. He removed his new wife and the children from the little Connecticut village where they had hitherto lived to New York, where he found lodgings for them. In the course of a few months, she found that the man she had so hastily married had a violent and even brutal temper and was addicted to intemperate habits, which were constantly interfering with his prospects of steady employment. Instead of her care and labor being lessened, both were increased. The lodgings to which Martin carried his wife at first were respectable, but after a while there was a difficulty about the rent, and they were obliged to move. They moved frequently, each time compelled to take dirtier and shabbier accommodations. Rufus was soon taken from school and compelled, as a newsboy, to do his part towards supporting the family. In fact, his earnings generally amounted to more than his stepfather's, who only worked irregularly. A year before the date of our story, Mrs. Martin died, solemnly entrusting to her son the charge of his little sister Rose, then six years old. "'Take good care of her,' said the dying mother. "'You know what your stepfather is. Don't let him beat or ill-treat her. I trust her wholly to you.' "'I'll take care of her, mother,' said Rufus sturdily. "'Don't be afraid for her.' "'God will help you, Rufus,' said the poor mother. "'I am glad you are such a boy as I can trust.' "'I ain't so good as I might be, mother,' said Rufus, touched by the scene. "'But you can trust me with Rosie.' Mrs. Martin knew that Rufus was a sturdy and self-relying boy, and she felt that she could trust him, so her last moments were more peaceful than they would have been but for this belief. After her death, Rufus continued the main support of the household. He agreed to pay the rent, five dollars monthly, and fifty cents a day towards the purchase of food. This he did faithfully. He found himself obliged, besides, to buy clothing for his little sister, for his stepfather, who spent his time chiefly in bar rooms, troubled himself very little about the little girl, except to swear at her when he was irritated. Rough and Ready gained his name partly from its resemblance in sound to his right name of Rufus, but chiefly because it described him pretty well. Any of his street associates who attempted to impose upon him found him a rough customer, he had a pair of strong arms and was ready to use them when occasion seemed to require it. But he was not quarrelsome. He was generous and kind to smaller boys and was always willing to take their part against those who tried to take advantage of their weakness. There was a certain Tom Price, a big swaggering street bully, a boot black by profession, with whom Rough and Ready had had more than one sharp contest, which terminated in his favor, though a head shorter than his opponent. To tell the truth, Rough and Ready, in addition to his strength, had the advantage of a few lessons in boxing, which he had received from a young man who had been at one time an inmate of the same building with himself. This knowledge served him in good stead. I hope my young readers will not infer that I am an advocate of fighting. It can hardly help being brutal under any circumstances, but where it is never resorted to except to check ruffianism, as in the case of my young hero, it is less censurable. After setting up Johnny Nolan in business, Rough and Ready crossed to the opposite side of the street and walked up Center Street. He stopped to buy a red-cheeked apple at one of the old women's stalls which he passed. Rosie likes apples, he said to himself. I suppose she's waiting to hear me come upstairs. He walked for about a quarter of a mile till he came in sight of the tombs, which is situated at the northwest corner of Center and Leonard Streets, fronting on the first. It is a grim-looking building built of massive stone. 
Rough and Ready did not quite go up to it, but turned off and went down Leonard Street in an easterly direction. Leonard Street, between Center and Baxter Streets, is wretched and squalid, not as bad perhaps as some of the streets in the neighborhood, for example, Baxter Street, but a very undesirable residence. Here it was, however, that our hero and his sister lived. It was not his own choice, for he would have gladly lived in a neat, clean street, but he could not afford to pay a high rent, and so was compelled to remain where he was. He paused in front of a dilapidated brick building of six stories. The bricks were defaced and the blinds were broken, and the whole building looked miserable and neglected. There was a grocery shop kept in the lower part, and the remaining five stories were crowded with tenants, two or three families to a floor. The street was generally littered up with old wagons in a broken-down condition, and odors far from savory rose from the garbage that was piled up here and there. Crowds of pale, unhealthy-looking children with dirty faces, generally bareheaded and barefooted, played about managing with the happy faculty of childhood to show light-hearted gaiety even under the most unpromising circumstances. Rough and Ready, who was proud of his little sister, liked to have her appear more decently clad than most of the children in the street. Little Rose never appeared without a bonnet, and both shoes and stockings, and through envy of her more respectable appearance, some of the street girls addressed her with mock respect as Miss Rose. But no one dared to treat her otherwise than well when her brother was near, as his prowess was well known throughout the neighborhood. Our hero dashed up the dark and rickety staircase two stairs at a time, ascending from story to story until he stood on the fifth landing. A door was eagerly opened, and a little girl of seven called out joyfully, Is it you, Rufus? At home, Rough and Ready dropped his street nickname and was known by his proper appellation. Yes, Rosie, did you get tired of waiting? I'm always tired of waiting. The morning seems so long. Yes, it must seem long to you. Did you go out and play? Only a few minutes. Didn't you want to stay? The little girl looked embarrassed. I went out a little while, but the girls kept calling me Miss Rose, and I came in. I'd like to hear em, said Rufus angrily. They don't do it when you're here. They don't dare to, said Rose, looking with pride at her brother, whom she looked upon as a young hero. They'd better not, said the newsboy significantly. They'd wish they hadn't, that's all. You see, I wore my new clothes, said Rose, by way of explanation. That made them think I was proud and putting on airs, but they won't do it again. Why not, asked her brother, puzzled. Because, said Rose sadly, I shan't wear them again. Shan't wear them, repeated Rough and Ready. Are you afraid to? I can't. Why can't you? Because I haven't got them to wear. Rose's lip quivered as she said this, and she looked ready to cry. I don't understand you, Rosie, said the newsboy, looking perplexed. Why haven't you got them, I should like to know. Because father came home and took them away, said the little girl. What? exclaimed Rough and Ready quickly. Took them away? Yes. What did he do that for? said the boy angrily. He said he shouldn't let you waste your money in buying nice clothes for me. He said that my old ones were good enough. When did he take them away? said the boy, his heart stirred with indignation. Only a little while ago. Do you know where he took them, Rosie? He said he was going to take them to Baxter Street to sell. He said he wasn't going to have me dressed out like a princess while he hadn't a cent of money in his pocket. Poor Rufus. He had been more than a month saving up money to buy some decent clothes for his little sister. He had economized in every possible way to accomplish it, anticipating her delight when the new hat and dress should be given her. 
He cared more that she should appear well than himself, for in other eyes besides her brother's, Rose was a charming little girl. She had the same clear complexion as her brother, an open brow, soft silken hair hanging in natural curls, fresh rosy cheeks in spite of the unhealthy tenement house in which she lived, and a confiding look in her dark blue eyes, which proved very attractive. Only the day before the newsboy had brought home the new clothes and felt abundantly rewarded by the delight of his little sister and the improvement in her appearance. He had never before seen her looking so well. But now he could not think of it without indignation. His intemperate stepfather had taken away the clothes which he had worked so hard to buy, and by this time had probably sold them for one quarter of their value at one of the old clothes shops in Baxter Street. It's too bad, Rosie, he said. I'll go out and see if I can't get them back. While he was speaking, an unsteady step was heard on the staircase. He's coming, said Rose with a terrified look. A hard and resolute look came into the boy's face as turning towards the door he awaited the entrance of his stepfather. End of section one. Recording by Tori Falder.